All right, we're continuing our series, God on Film and Wonder Woman. The story is, it says Princess Diana, and Diana is coming from a different world, and she has come to save the world. So she's left her world and entered into our world to bring salvation to the people because she saw that man was worthy of being saved. Easy to see the principle there of here's Jesus left his world, his perfect paradise, to enter into our world because we are, wor- we are worth, at some, we- some level, worth salvation. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to run through Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 and 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Here Paul has been writing to the church at Philippi. And one of the things he's talking about in this is he's comparing us and how we should be unified in our, in our relationships. In the first four verses, he's talking about that specific church and what it means to be humble, what it means to be obedient. And he's taking that and talking about that, and he's giving Christ, Jesus, as the ultimate example for us to be humble, obedient servants. And that how is Christ himself, if he is God, what was it like for him to come down into earth and to humble himself and to take on the fullness of humanity and to experience what we experience so that he could be the mediator for us, that he could sit at the right hand of the Father and understand and be the priest on our behalf. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says this. In your relationships with one another, this is in the church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now this idea, let's stop just there for the mindset, is this idea and attitude, the way that we think, the way that our emotions here, we have this seat of emotions, we have the seat of the will, and in the Hebrew mindset, this right here is where your mind is at, that, they, that this, there's not a separation between your heart and your mind. And so that as you're thinking, that you're motivated and that you're moving. In other words, I know what you believe by your behavior. And that's what here Jesus is saying. This is what Paul is saying to us, is that the, our motivations and our behavior are shown by our heart. And so Paul is telling us, is, listen, church people, in your relationships with one another have the same motivation, have the same actions, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that is one to be humble, that is one to be obedient, that is one to self-sacrifice yourself on behalf of others, that to think of others more highly than what we do, to have the same attitude and same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature, God, and this idea of nature is, is one of, it's a difficult, we have finite language to express and understand an infinite God. And so the best that we can come up with, the best that I can come up with in my language is here is God in his very nature, okay, being God, took off his God cloak and put on the human cloak, all right, so that he could experience life with us and that we would see him and we would see Jesus in, hum, in human flesh and understand that he was fully human but there's something radically different about him. Jesus, in his humanness, lived humanity to its fullness. Without sin, he 100% human. And his deity didn't keep him from sinning, okay? It was his relationship with God the Father, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. In other words, he emptied himself of the rights and privileges of his Godship so that he could come and serve us, not to his own advantage. Some of your 
Some of your translations may say robbed or to be grasped. In other words, whenever he stepped out from heaven into earth and took on human flesh, human frailty, that his mindset was one to not consider grabbing the rights and privileges that were rightly his, but he said, I'm going to limit myself to humanity and I don't want to grasp the advantage. I don't want to take advantage of the rights and privileges of what I have, but I want to be experienced full humanness. And the attitude and the mindset for us is so many times is that we are constantly grabbing after and seeking after and trying to take from and seek things, opportunities, our roles and our positions of authority for our own advantage. And so here what Paul is telling us is, listen, if there was one person who ever walked this earth who had the opportunity and the rights to grab authority, to grab privilege, to grab to say, listen, give worth and worship to me, bow down to me. It was Christ himself. But even in his human flesh as he walked among us, he said, listen, I'm not going to use my God rights, my God privileges to have you worship me. Actually, I did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve. To his own advantage in those moments, he actually bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples and said, listen, this is what it means to do relationships with each other. How radical it is for a community of believers that when we begin to see each other through Christ's eyes and through Christ's mindset, instead of asserting our authority, asserting our, our power, our rights that we perceive that we have, and instead to begin to serve one another and to take care of one another as Christ did, how that radically changes our relationships. Does it feel a little weird that I don't have my pulpit? Okay, good. It feels weird to me too. It's somewhere. I don't know where it's at, but it's somewhere. We had a wedding here yesterday. All right. To his own advantage. Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now, I know some of you understand this idea of nothing. How many of you have ever gone to your bank or the bank has called you and told you you have nothing in your account? Only me. And Ross, that's good. Ross, we'll talk about it later on. We'll have some stories. We have no hair and we have no money in our account. That's good. So I've got the double blessing of nothing. I understand. To have nothing, to literally be of no account. Some of you even know what it's like to be negative in your account, right? That they call you and say, hey, you don't even have enough money. But as a matter of fact, we're loaning you money at this point. This is this idea. Rather, he made himself of no account. Zero. He balanced out the account to zero. Even though he had the rights and privileges and authority as God, he could have taken all account. But he said, listen, I'm entering into this world and I give myself of no account of nothing so that I can serve. Nothing, totally emptied out so that I could be a servant. Some of your translations didn't say servant, it may say slave. And so in history we understand that slavery, still even to this day, slavery is going around. And I've said this several times recently, is that slavery is now, there's more slaves now than there's ever been in world history. Okay? There's more slaves now. So it's not going away. All right? This is um, the children and adults, men and women, are being sold into slavery at, at huge amounts all around the world, including here in the United States. And so slavery is just one of these things, it's... it's the most vile, debased part of humanity for someone to be sold into that and for someone to have to live that lifestyle of saying, listen, you are constantly 
on command that whatever this person says or these persons say, you are to do whatever they, they tell you to do, no matter the cost, even if it costs you your life, you're to do that. There is no there is no no. There is no in a little bit. There is no other thing other than to say, listen, I'm asking you to do this and you go do it. So the lowest form of living life as a slave. And Jesus says, I have come and I've made myself of no account. Even though I have the rights and privileges of God himself, I have made myself a slave and a servant to humanity. This is radical language for the early church. Because the early church, probably half of the people that Paul is talking to in the church of Philippi had either been a slave or understood slaves or maybe even had slaves. And so this was, this was common language and a common understanding of what it meant for someone to live under the authority of someone else even though, even though they had the rights and privileges of a king that were living as a slave and to surrender their rights and authority. And here Paul is saying that that is Jesus, God in flesh, giving up his rights and authority and made himself into flesh, allowed himself into the flesh, and he's incarnated and walking amongst us. And so he's living as a servant unto us, being made in human likeness. In other words, that when people looked at him, they saw Jesus in human flesh. One of the early things in the early church was that this idea that Jesus was a ghost, that he was just an appearance. And so actually whenever you see after Jesus was resurrected, every single encounter that Jesus had after he was resurrected, he showed them that it wasn't a ghost, but that he was a physical appearance. He said to Thomas, Thomas, you don't believe, so do what? Touch. Jesus ate with the disciples. A ghost doesn't eat. And so you can see Jesus understanding, God understanding that, hey, one of the things that's going to come against us is that I'm just an appearance. I'm not the real man. This wasn't a real resurrection. And so Jesus is, for the 40 days afterwards, he's walking and he's doing things and he's showing to the people, listen, you are witnesses to the fact that not only am I resurrected, but there's a physical resurrection. I was once dead but now I'm alive. You've touched me. You've ate with me. You've talked with me. You've experienced the physical presence of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, as a man, I've walked among you and I've given up all of my rights and privileges to serve you so that you might know my Father. He's given up everything. Being made in human likeness. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself, again, submitting his rights, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Roman citizens didn't die a death on a cross, only those that weren't Roman citizens, criminals, thieves, the lowest of the low, the cross, the crucifixion cross. In those days, it was for slaves, thieves, and the lowest of the lows. Roman citizens, they were, they were too high on the totem pole, so they would be, if they were sentenced to death, it would be a different death. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied anything about the crucifixion, but it is horrid. A horrid way to die. Now, here's how Jesus was put on the cross. He was, obviously, he was in trial, and after the trial, he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, and a cat of nine tails would have glass and have bone, and have all these strips, and so as they're going across multiple times, every time that they hit him, it's ripping, and that's the intent of the cat of nine tails, that as they go across his back and it sinks into your skin and then they have to yank it to get it off every time it's ripping flesh. Every 
single time. So just the preparation for the cross. And then Jesus had to carry an extremely heavy beam, and he was carrying it with him, even to the point that he began to fall, and someone else helped him carry it, finish carrying it up. And whenever he would get up, the crucifixion, the nailing through the hands and through the palm, sometimes they would do that, sometimes they wouldn't. In Jesus' case, we read that they did. And they would come through and they would take these big old spikes and they would put it through the palm and, and, and wrist area right here. Of course, bones and everything is shattering. And he's there. And the reasons that they would do that is because you're hanging there. They've got a little post where your feet are at, just enough. They would put you at just the right height so that whenever you begin to drown, whenever you begin to, to literally not be able to breathe and to drown in your own stuff, you have to kind of pull up and to catch your breath. Just enough. And you have just enough strength to hold there. And see, we have this idea of it's like it's a quick one-hour deal. Yes, it's extreme pain, but it's a one-hour deal. The reason they did the crucifixion is so that it could, could mock you for days. There's literally historical stories of people lasting for more than a week on a crucifix, crucifixion, that they're up there for days just kind of, and people would come by and their family. Can you imagine as a family that you're there and this is your last sight of your loved one? And so here's Jesus taking a breath, and his mother, Mary, and John, everyone's gathered around. Even Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever he and the disciples went into the garden, it's his last time to pray, and he's gathered together with his disciples, and he understands what's, what's about to happen, what's about to take place. And so he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he says, hey, pray with me. And he, he sets them there, and he goes a little bit further in, and begins to pray, and it's such a traumatic event for him. What he knows is about to happen, that he literally sweats blood. The understanding, not just of the physical pain, and if you knew that the crucifixion was about to happen to you, we would be scared. There would be some trembling. But Jesus understood that the crucifixion meant more for him than just a physical death. It also meant in that moment that he would be receiving all of our sins on him. Listen, mine are enough. Think about yours and yours and yours. This entire room. And he knows in the Garden of Gethsemane that that's what he's going to. And so in that moment, he's saying, Father, not my will. Because see, even Jesus was hoping there was another way. Not because of the physical part of the cross, but because of the separation between him and the Father in that moment. He had never lost fellowship with his Father. And he understood in that moment there would be this this moment in time where he and the Father would be separate when sin overcame him because in that moment he would lose the holiness of who he was in that moment because of all of our stuff. And that's the thing that would made him sweat blood. The trauma of that is, Father, I don't want to be without you. But he said, I'm willing to submit. As a slave, as a servant, I'm willing to submit and be obedient even to the point of death on a cross because you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. We have a good, good Father who's perfect in all of His ways. And He says, you are worth it. You are worth it. 
He came from paradise. Some of you have been to paradise, you've been to the beach, or you've been somewhere that you're like, man, this is it. And then you've got to come back to the real world. It stinks. Imagine paradise to here, to the cross. And in that moment, knowing, Father, not my will, but your will. And to be obedient. Obedient even unto the cross. He submitted and humbled himself and gave up the rights and privileges of Godhead, of kingship, of King of kings and Lord of lords, so that you and I could experience a taste, a taste of the fellowship that Jesus and the Father had. Mark 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of a, of a ransom is literally, in, in those days, whenever they would have someone that was a slave and they would sell them, they would put them up on a pedestal and they would set them up. And so the, whoever the owner of that person was would say, hey, aren't they good stock? Look, look at them. And they would literally, you, you, were, you would stand vulnerable. Adults, you understand what I mean? You're completely vulnerable. And they would turn you around and have people look at you. They would poke at you. They would open your mouth and say, hey, here's the teeth. They're good, healthy stock. They'll serve you well. And so there's people around and they're judging your worthiness. And saying, ah, they're worth this amount and this amount. And so here's what Jesus comes to that moment and he's saying, listen, I am the ransom for all of those that live life in slavery, which is us, before Jesus. And we're up there and people are saying, they're not worthy. And sometimes we still feel that. We still sense that we're up here and we're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to do things. And what Jesus is saying, listen, I came to be ransom for you. I've paid the complete price for you. And whenever you were bought... Out of slavery, there was a seal that was sealed and it was un- unbreakable. It was a covenant that was unbreakable. And so what Jesus is saying, listen, I came to be a ransom. And when I bought you, I bought you and I paid with you the seal. The seal has been there. It's unbroken. And you are redeemed. In other words, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a servant to anyone. No one else can buy you. You are no longer to stand in front of other people and to say, what is his worth? What is his value? What is her worth? What is her value? And he says to us, you are the most valuable thing in the world. Quit selling yourself out to stuff that continues to put you under slavery and to serve others and to serve addictions, to serve whatever it is. I bought you with great price. It was obedience unto a cross. For the first time he lost fellowship with the Father and he says, even you are worth that price. He stepped out of paradise to be with us. Continuing on in verses 9 through 11, here's Jesus' gift. I'd always, for years, I had thought that this was just something that Jesus deserved, and he did deserve it. But here's the rights and privileges that he gained as a gift from God the Father. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him, literally raised him up, left, put him at the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. See, the very thing that whenever he was walking among us, he would tell people, hey, don't tell people what happened, you just, you just go away, and, and would 
would not want people to worship and bow him here in this moment. God says that this will happen. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he received the gift of the name above all names. That for even for us, obedience, through obedience, there's gifts, the rewards for us. One is the obedience, the, the ability to, to run away from those things that hold us down, that we'll begin to understand of the worth and value that we truly have and that, that God has ransomed us and that he loves us and he cares deeply for us and that we don't submit ourselves to those things anymore. There's victory and freedom in those gifts. As a Christian, as a little Christ, as a disciple, as a student of Jesus, what does it mean for us to have the mind of Jesus? What does it mean for us to have the mind of Jesus? Think about your week this week. There have been moments where you would say, hey, I probably didn't have the mind of Christ. And I'm not talking about at the donut shop where you're thinking I need two donuts or whatever. Thinking about when someone maybe drove and cut you off. And you said, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to get around you. Whatever it is that you... Maybe your husband or your wife disappointed you. Maybe your kids disappointed you. Maybe your friends, your boss, your co-workers. What does it mean in those moments? Because see, this is great stuff to talk about on Sunday morning and to think about. But what does it truly mean for us as followers of Jesus, as students of the way of Jesus? What does it mean for us to have the mindset of Christ? What does it mean for us to be humble to the point of death? What are we willing to give up so that someone can know Jesus. I had this discussion with my son this week. Sorry. I had a lady email me and then call me and say, Hey, I got an eleven year old boy. He's not my boy. He's not even he's not even my grandson, but he needs to learn how to ride the bike. Do you know someone who could teach him? And I thought, shoot, I know a bunch of guys that can help him. I'm busy. So I taught him. And I brought my son. I was like, dude, let's do this together. So we're riding the bike. He's out there, and he's he's not there yet, but we're going to get to it, okay? And so we spent an hour and a half out in the sun, and we're riding the bike and doing all this stuff. And one time he falls, and he just begins to weep. And I'm like, this is not <laughs> normal. My kid, I'm like, get up, let's go. There's no scratches, let's go. Of course, I don't know this kid. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And, and he looks up and he says, I wish I knew my father. And my boy hears that. 
So me, this little 11-year-old, we sit down out here in the hot pavement. Literally, I think I have calluses. And to just talk. And to say, what do you want from your father? Because I want him to know that that I love him. And I want him to be proud of me. What does that mean? So we just talk for a moment at eleven year old mind and watch my son. The entire time taking this conversation. And in that moment I realize it's much more than a bike ride. This little kid needed someone to say, Hey, you're worthy and valuable of my time to invest in you, to, to do something that literally in so many ways is meaningless to ride a bike. I mean, it's just one of those, it's, it's easy, right? Get it. But he needed someone to say, hey, listen, you're worthy and valuable. What would your father take pride in you for? And he said, riding my bike. And you and I know it's more than riding a bike, but he jumped on the bike and began to ride. And say, your father is proud of you. Listen, you are riding a bike in life. And there are going to be times that you think that it is just breezy, easy, and the brakes are going to lock up, and you're going to go headfirst over, over those handlebars, and you're going to go, what in the world? And sometimes it's just a little pebble. Stuff that you thought you'd won over, stuff that you thought wasn't, part of your life anymore and you didn't see it and you were just thinking you were got it and you're over it. Sometimes someone else is going to ride up next to you and you're going to, they're going to go faster. Listen, our good, good father is perfect in all of his ways. He stepped down out of paradise, gave up all of his rights and privileges as a king and said, you are worth it. I'm going to invest my time and my energy and even my life so that you can ride the bike of life with freedom and to experience what it is to have the the wind of God in your face in those moments and to say, this right here, in this moment, this is what freedom and victory looks like. This has got to be a taste of heaven. I want more of that. Because, you know, once you start riding your bike and you feel free, there are no obstacles. There's plenty of opportunities. You can ride as long as you want to ride and do so many different things. And the world opens up. Listen, God the Father loves you, even to the point of the cross and gave his life for you. If you haven't said yes to that, today's your opportunity. God wants you to hop on the bike and begin to ride. You may not feel like you're worthy. You may have the most horrendous story in the world. And you feel like you don't want to be vulnerable before him. And listen, God's already paid the price. He's just waiting for you to accept the gift. To say, I accept the gift of your redeeming me. And of the greatest 
gift of all. And I don't want to live like a slave anymore. I don't want to live like a servant. I want to live as a child of the King and receive that. Would you please stand with me this morning? Before we pray, just continue. I want you to think, what does it mean for you to have the mindset of Christ? What does it mean for you for relationships, maybe with your husband, your wife, maybe with your coworkers, maybe someone in a small group or someone you're having struggles with? What does it mean to have the attitude, the motivation to love them, the motivation to be humble, the motivation to give up your rights and privileges? And to say, listen, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that you can have and know and understand who this Jesus is. Our mission here at Second Baptist is to know Christ and to make him known. And as we've talked about over and over and over again, this know is just not a head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. The biblical idea is not just head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge that you experience who Jesus is time and time again. And you keep coming back to him because you've experienced it. You begin to trust him. And understand that He is a good, good Father. He only desires the best for you. There is no junk. You're not junk and He doesn't provide junk. Only the best. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We can't even begin to grasp what You gave up to give life to us. Our language even doesn't even begin to cover what it meant for you to give up being in the presence of God the Father to become here and to walk in human flesh among us and to be a ser- servant and a slave, to be, to be born in a manger, the lowliest of places. Father, that's, that's your story that you gave up everything for us. The sacrifices of rights and privileges so that we could have life to the full. We thank you for that. Father, may we this morning, if we haven't said yes to you, I pray that you would, would burden us with that. Father, if we've at a place where we're saying, hey, we need to recommit to that, that we would recommit to that, or wherever you're at with us, may we be open and transparent and authentic. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.